0: This podcast is brought to you by the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. What an absolute privilege it is to talk to our next guest. In fact, he's in studio. You saw him on CNBC yesterday. So did we. He is Dr. Mohammed El-Aryan. He's the chief economic advisor at Allianz. He's the former CEO of PIMCO, columnist for Bloomberg, contributing editor for the Financial Times. He has authored two books. He was the chair of Obama's Global Development Council from 2012 to 2017. And yet he makes time to come back to Wharton and teach the young people by way of the Lauder Institute. What a privilege, Dr. Arian. Good morning. Good morning.
1: Thank you for having me on the show.
0: Thank you very much. Let me begin there with your resume. It's still important to you to come back to the classroom and talk to young people. Why?
1: For many reasons. One is because I learn a lot. You learn Uh, a lot. I learn a lot. I have found, especially at Wharton, the students to be very engaged And I'll give you an example. There's some classes where I start um, lecturing, and then I ask a question, and next thing I know, there is a conversation that goes on between the students themselves. And I literally step back and listen to it, and I learn a lot. Second, I'm a great believer in using structure to discipline myself, and nothing makes you catch up on your reading and on research as having to teach. And finally, I really enjoy it. I really intera- like interacting with people who are going to be influencing and
0: informing the world we live in. Yeah, they're here at Wharton, and so they are going to be. What is their mindset? Are they optimistic? Are they pessimistic? You can't generalize in a group like that, but generally speaking. So the, the average
1: student here um, doing the MBA is someone who's done something really interesting already. In fact, when I sit with them informally, I go around the table and say, introduce yourself and tell me something about yourself. And by the end of that, I'm completely intimidated by what I've heard. <laughs> you know, the average person has achieved more in the mid-20s than I have in my life. And you say, you know, I've started a company, I've did this in Africa. Um, so they are, they are serious, they're motivated, they've had some experience, but they also recognize that there's a lot of challenges ahead. So there's this wonderful mixture of, on the one hand, being confident but not being arrogant, realizing that there's a lot to learn and that this is a very tricky world to grow into and mature into and graduate into.
0: What do you see as their biggest challenge ahead in their life in the next 20 years? You talk a lot and we hear a lot about uh, AI and we hear a lot about automation and robots and a very different world. How do you envision their biggest challenge across the next 20 years?
1: So I call it dealing with, to use Ben Bernanke's phrase, the former chair of the Fed, unusual uncertainty. That everything is moving. That the world is being shaken from above and from below. So from above, you have big secular themes like climate change, like demographics, like deglobalization. These are big themes. Um, In my days, you could take things as relatively constant. We didn't worry about the climate. We thought that the world would continue to globalize but and at the same time you're being shaken from below by technological disruption. Technology is changing not just what we do but how we do it. So if you if you're sitting there in a world shaken from above and shaken from below, it is not a comforting situation to be in. But we grew up with the nuclear threat, nuclear well, war threat. We did, we did uh, and that certainly was was a big issue. But we didn't have question marks as to how are we going to do things going forward. Uh, There was a sense that our life was a ladder. Careers were ladders. You climb up and you spend most of the time climbing up the ladder. And this notion of changing ladders was very strange. The notion of being on a complete jungle gym where you fall off and you get back on and then suddenly all the rules change. um, that, That was pretty alien to us. Our career were ladders. And I think that what, what the exciting and, and also the challenging thing to anybody today looking at career is that the concept of a ladder is not the right one anymore.
0: You grew up in Egypt, New York City. You were educated in London. Is this what you always wanted to be, the chief economic advisor at Allianz?
1: No, what I really always wanted to be is in the university. And in fact, yes, I would have been. Um, So I did my undergraduate, and then I was doing my undergraduate at Cambridge University, and then I was doing my postgraduate um, at Oxford in England, and I was set to be an academic. And then my father suddenly died, my mother had never worked, and I had a seven-year-old sister. So at the time, the only people that really paid PhD economists— and by paid, I mean paid something more than a university that paid nothing in -hmm. in those days, um, were the international organizations. So I found myself going to an international organization, the IMF, the International Monetary Fund in Washington. Little did I know that that would be one of the best moves I've ever did. But it wasn't a pull factor. It was a push factor. Um, So another element of coming back to Wharton is to be able to
0: reconnect with something that I've always wanted to do, but got onto a different track. That's wonderful. We, In the limited time, I wish I had so much more time with you, but let's get right to the issues. You were quoted widely this week as saying that many economists are underestimating what the effects are going to be of coronavirus. Would you talk about that? So the consensus expectation is what I call a very
1: sharp V. We come down in the first quarter. We go straight up in the second quarter, and therefore, if you look for the year as a whole, there isn't going to be much impact. It is On the U.S. or globally? On the U.S. and globally. Okay. Even, even in China, the assumption was it bounces right back. There's two reasons for that. One is we have, been con- we have been conditioned to think of every external shock as being containable, temporary, and reversible. And an example is the sudden attack on the Saudi Arabian oil production. People were very worried, um, we're going to have a major shock to the oil oil price, it's going to impact the global economy, within two weeks, oil production was back, and we looked back on it, and it was just a tiny blip. The second is we had the SARS um, experience, and the SARS experience was a V. So that is what the market is expecting. I think that's too optimistic. I hope that's the case, to be clear. I hope that's the case, but I think it's too optimistic. Why do you think it's too optimistic? This this is a shock to both demand and supply. It is a shock to China that is now the second largest economy in the world that has intensive trade and financial relationship with, with lots of other countries. And it is, importantly, a shock both to manufacturing and services. It is the equivalent of a cascading economic stops. So the first element is right in the province where it broke out. You shut everything down. Literally, it's a sudden stop. And we say, okay, it's concentrated there. And then we start seeing it migrate, first within China, then outside China. Nowadays, company after company in the U.S. is reporting an uncertain demand and supply outlook because of that. Apple, of course, was the one that captured the headlines. But it is many companies that right now are not selling in Asia and are starting to, to worry about, am I going to be able to keep my factories not just in Asia but outside Asia open because I'm not getting the supplies I need?
0: Obviously, the the, the big trage- tragedy is the human life lost. Absolutely. Past that, though, when we talk about supply chains, we're talking about cars and airplane engines and a number of things that the United States will be directly affected by in this supply chain.
1: That's right. I mean, the good news is if you look at, at the impact, and, and it's really important to remember that it's a human tragedy, and thank you um, for, for stressing that. If you look at the economic impact, China, of course, is the hardest hit. Then second hardest hit are uh, countries around China, Asia, Australia, so Asia Pacific. Third is Europe. And then finally, it's us in the United States. So yes, we'll be impacted, but not as severely as
0: other countries. Let's switch gears and talk about the economy broadly. Uh, And starting with the U.S., as we came up through the, The holidays, there was this sense of the second-roaring 20s. There's nothing but good news coming out. Occasionally a dip, but, you know, up, up, and away. There are also—what was the Bernanke phrase you just used?
1: Unusual uncertainty.
0: Let's come back to Greenspan and irrational exuberance. Do we have any of that now? I think we do. You know,
1: if you have been an investor, a traditional investor—so let's take the the simplest portfolio— 60% 60 in stocks because that's your engine of return and 40% in bonds because that gives you a certain amount of protection. If you have been that investor, you have done extremely well. I call it living the dream. You have lived the dream in three different ways. One is you got almost 30% returns on the S&P. That's not bad. (laughs) Not bad. Second... You've even made money on your risk-free assets, on your bonds, on your government bonds. They're supposed to be negatively correlated. When one goes up, the other one's supposed to go down. Well, guess what? In 2018, you've made money on both. And so you've paid nothing for risk mitigation. That's not supposed to happen. And thirdly, you've had these massive moves, these unusual moves with no volatility. And investors don't like volatility because they are unsettling, or even they force you to do the wrong thing at the wrong time. So we have been living the dream. In the process, we have decoupled from realities on the ground. We've decoupled from the fundamentals. Valuations, multiples have gone up significantly. Too much. I think too much in some cases. Others will tell you no. And where you end up on that comes back to the major cause of all this, which is massive and predictable central bank injection of liquidity. So we have ultra low interest rates. In Europe, we have negative interest rates. We have about $15 trillion of bonds trading at negative rates. Think about
0: that. So quantitative easing and buying these bonds to put liquidity in is why we're seeing this? Correct. It has been, it has been the,
1: the, the, the driver. That's the driver. That is the driver. And it works very easily. And we have to understand, central banks are what we call non-commercial players. They're not in markets to make money. They are trying to fulfill an economic objectives. So what is their objective? Keeping the economy going until we get an infrastructure program, until we get tax reform, until we get all the things that drive genuine growth. How does the central bank do that? It can't build roads. It can't help retrain labor. It can't change the fiscal code but it can do one thing. It can convince you to take on more risk. How does it do that? By taking interest rates very low and pushing you, literally pushing you to look for returns elsewhere. We all do that. We push the the asset prices higher. Then when we open our statements, we think we are better off. We think we're rich or richer. So what does that trigger? The wealth effect. And what do people do when they feel they're wealthier? They spend more. So the hope is you push asset prices up, you encourage people to spend more. The minute people spend more, companies will invest more, and you promote economic growth. The problem is this has worked extremely well when it comes to promoting asset prices. It hasn't worked well when it comes to promoting economic
0: activity. Then where do you see rates going? As a matter of fact, you were on CNBC yesterday. Steve Leisman in the morning spoke to a Fed official who just off-the-cuff opined... uh, don't look for a, a rate cut anytime soon, and the markets immediately started downward.
1: So I think he's going to regret that 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 phrase. Um, and yes, when the markets are conditioned to expect the Fed to be our BFF, our best friend forever, the minute the best friend doesn't cooperate immediately, <laughs> um, we 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 moan. We have a little tantrum, <laughs> okay? Um, and guess what? The best friend then ends up cooperating over and over again, and, and that's been the history of the last few years. So so I do think that, that central banks have a massive disproportionate influence on
0: in, investors these days. So no real prediction from you on where rates so, will go?
1: I, I think lower for longer is the right one. So, so lower in the sense that if interest rates are to move – They are more likely to move down than up, and they're likely to stay there for long. I am not a buyer of us following Europe into negative interest rates. I think people realize that too low an interest rate actually breaks things. You not only become ineffective, you become counterproductive as a central bank. But I don't see them having the courage to increase interest rates.
0: This is Wharton Business Daily on Sirius XM Channel 132. My name is Al Gardner, and I am privileged to be speaking with Dr. Mohamed el Arian, the chief economic advisor at Allianz, communist, uh, columnist for Bloomberg. And obviously we talked about, did I say communist? You're the opposite of that, I think. But uh, on that subject, Michael Bloomberg referred to Bernie Sanders as a communist. Can we, can we go into a different direction and talk a little bit about presidential politics? Let's do that. Uh, did you watch the debate? I did. What did you make of Mr.
1: Bloomberg? So I think that he experienced um, two things that were, I think, okay, were predictable. One is um, that coming in as a strong contender is not a good thing because you you unite everybody against you. And two is that people give you less credit for what you've achieved— and focus much more on what either is or was perceived to be um, your limitations. And, you know, it seems to me that he was taken aback by, by these two things in the beginning because he, the first
0: um, good 20, 25 minutes was everybody attacking him? Well, if, if in boxing, if you can rock your opponent in the first couple seconds of the first round, he may not recover. His legs are going to be a little wobbly for the rest of the fight. I thought Elizabeth Warren came right out at him within 30 seconds of the debate beginning, and I don't think he ever really recovered.
1: Yeah, so, so the debate is did he recover or did he not recover, right? And by the way, that has an con- con- immediate re- relevance to business today which is you're going to be hit left, and right, and center by things you don't expect. And you need the combination of three things. You need the resilience to absorb it. So no, no knockouts. Don't make a mistake that you cannot afford to make. You need the optionality to figure out where, where are these blows coming from, what I should be doing. And then you need the agility to respond really quickly to, to an opening. That, that is what you need. Mayor Bloomberg needed all three. And I think there's a big debate as to whether he delivered on that or not. But focus on the next debate. I suspect he
0: will adjust a lot. I think he will, too. Why do you think Bernie Sanders is the front runner? The
1: same reason why you're having more and more anti-establishment movements appear around the world. People are angry. There's a sense that the system has not delivered. People look for something new, something fresh. So what you tend to see um, is the more right and the more left of the political distribution get a lot more attention than you'd expect them to. Um, That's true in Europe. That's true today in the United States. And I think it is totally understandable. People want to shake the place up, and people are looking for passionate politicians that can offer them something. The key issue—and we saw this, for example, in Britain with Brexit— I think that the one thing we've learned, though, is not enough to come in and say, I'm going to dismantle the whole system. We also have to ask people who say that, what are you going to build instead? Um, The lesson of the UK with Brexit was it's much easier to agree on dismantling something than it is to agree on building something else. And I think that what you're going to see increasingly is people asking,
0: okay, no, I understand you don't like what you're seeing, but what will you build Instead. Are you saying that the path that Jeremy Corbyn took is exactly where Bernie Sanders is going? So
1: I, I think he'll learn from, from Jeremy Corbyn that you've you've got to, you've got to stay connected with your base. Um, you can go too far. I think most people would admit um, that Jeremy Corbyn went too far. And most people will tell you Jeremy Corbyn wasn't consistent. So he didn't have answers.
0: On Bernie Bre- does.
1: Yeah. On Brexit, Jeremy Corbyn was all over the place. People honestly didn't know where he stood. So, so you have to have clarity. No, um, Senator Sanders certainly has has clarity. And that's why he's got quite an important
0: base that's supporting him. But in the event he were to become president, he couldn't get a lot through the Senate, could he? Yeah, I think the, 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 our, our founding fathers
1: um, created a checks and balance system that stops us from swinging too far one way or the other. So where he has most flexibility is on foreign affairs. and We haven't actually heard him
0: much on foreign affairs. But when it comes to— Except in the Palestinian-Israeli, where he's a little bit—well, you tell me. What, correct, what he, correct. But we haven't
1: heard him say much about other places as yet. He has focused mainly about, is our system co-opted to benefit the rich? That, is, here's a good question for you, Dr. Arian. Is it? So let's talk about um, what central banks have been doing. They've been pushing up asset prices in order to promote economic well-being. They will say, focus on the destination. Many people say, no, focus on the journey. You're making the rich richer because who owns asset prices is the rich. Look at our recovery um, from the global financial crisis. It was very concentrated in tech. So we have a system where we haven't realized that not just economically but socially and politically, the middle of the distribution is getting stressed enormously. The middle class is under pressure. The political center is under pressure. Mid-sized companies are under pressure. That is the reality of our new world. And what the politicians haven't quite understood is that the middle of distributions anchor the stability of the distribution. That's why we lack a middle class. It anchors society. That's why we lack the political center, because it avoids these big swings one way than the other. And now I think there's a realization that we're just living in a different world
0: where we've hollowed out the middle of too many distributions. We talked a little off the air about Bernie Sanders. You you mentioned that Wall Street, a lot of people quiver in fear of him. Do you see him trying to nationalize businesses, uh, do radical steps if he were to become president? Not that he would have the power to do that, but to make those kinds of efforts? So I don't see him nationalizing. Um,
1: I do see him increasing regulation on Wall Street, and there is a sense um, that finance still is too big relative to what the economy needs. So so I, I would see him there. I would see him um, be rolling back certain tax cuts. I would see him trying to push through a higher minimum wage. Can we
0: afford the things he wants? Uh, healthcare, for example, for all, uh, free college in public institutions. Can we afford those? Things?
1: So the devil is in the details as to as to how quickly you do it and how you sequence it.
0: Right? You know, economists will tell you
1: will will say to someone, "Look, I don't want to take a political view. Tell me what you want to do, and I will tell you the benefits, costs and risks of that approach." And then we'll have a big discussion as to how valid is that. But ultimately, it's a political choice. So, our economy is resilient enough to take it, you know, left and right. We've shown that. What we need to understand is what what is the benefit cost and risk equation, and what can we do to make sure that it's a net positive.
0: Did anybody else on the stage impress you on the Democratic side? You know, I, I think
1: I, I think they were they all did well. Um, in terms of answering some of the issues, what, what I like about these debates, I mean, the one this week was a little bit a little bit different in terms of, of the tone of it. But we're starting to get more focused on policies. I thought the climate change discussion was important as to exactly what will you do? And people were pressed. What exactly will you do? What will you do? I, I love the question about two, the two cities that, that, that are having a, a spike in, in temperatures. What will you do about that? And I think it's really important for people to hear the
0: policy underpinnings of the candidates. Final question. Uh, If you can, he's in a classroom. Grade Donald Trump's presidency so far from an economic standpoint. So from an economic standpoint, he understood
1: very early on that you couldn't rely just on monetary policy. So he did two things um, that I think all economists agree is the reason why the U.S. has been able to outperform other countries. Now, you can disagree, and we should have a good discussion on was it fair, but deregulation promoted economic activity, and tax cuts promoted economic activity. So the reason why the U.S. has performed better than others is because we, unlike others, use the fiscal instrument and structural reforms to promote growth. Now, could we have done it in a fairer manner? Yes. Should we? I would have said, I say yes. Others say no, but I would say yes. The other thing he's done is that he has come up with a trade policy
0: that many criticize and now realize that's the right approach. I hate to say this, but we are out of time, and it is a privilege beyond words. Dr. Mohammed El-Aryan, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate you being in studio. Thank you very much. To keep engaged with Wharton Business Daily and other Wharton School shows, visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.